0: I invite you to turn with me in, the, in your copy of God's Word to Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 7. We're going to look this morning at chapter 7 and verse 1 all the way through chapter 8 and verse 3. The sermon is entitled, The Great Temple Sermon. Jeremiah chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Would you give your full attention now to the reading of God's holy and inspired Word? The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I have given of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. And see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, You did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all of your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. As for you, Do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves to their own shame? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts. And went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call to them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished, it is cut off from their lips. (laughs) Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because their There is no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs, and they shall be spread before the sun and the moon, and all the hosts of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped, and they shall not be gathered or buried." They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we continue making our way through the prophecy of Jeremiah, we give you thanks that. Through the reading and the preaching of Your Word, You speak to us, Your children. We pray that You would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say uh, to the church. And Father, we ask that You might grant that we would be saved from the sin that we see so vividly described in the text before us now. We thank You for the Lord Jesus, who is our righteousness, the one who cleanses us from sin, that we might be made fit uh, to inhabit the holy sanctuary of God forever and ever. We pray that you would be doing that work among us now, fitting us for the glory to come. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved, last week we concluded the section of Jeremiah's prophecy, if you remember, in which the Lord pronounced his judgment upon Judah through a series of three prophetic visions. And in those visions, he vividly described a call to flee, you remember, to Jerusalem in search of refuge from the Babylonian invasion, followed by a search for just one righteous person within Jerusalem during the Babylonian siege, followed by yet another call to flee from Jerusalem as the siege achieves its intended effect, and Jerusalem finally falls. And through those visions, the Lord not only ministers through Jeremiah as Jeremiah preaches this word to the people of Jerusalem, but he ministers to Jeremiah as the prophet struggles with the justice of the Lord's judgment. The Lord thus vindicates his justice by describing in shocking detail the nature of Judah's sin. But though her sin is great and his judgment is just He also reveals his grace in that he will not bring Judah to a full end, something he repeats uh, multiple times in that section. In other words, in his judgment, the Lord remembers mercy, and ultimately, he has in view the establishment of the new covenant in Jesus' blood. So in our text for this morning, we enter a new section of Jeremiah's prophecy, in which the Lord commands His prophet to go up, but not simply this time to Jerusalem, but specifically to His house, that is the temple, that He might preach in the temple gate as hypocritical hypocritical worshipers approach the Lord. So in the overall flow of Jeremiah's prophecy, we've moved from the Lord's identification of Judah's problem back in chapter 2, namely her lack of love to him through her idolatry, to his proposed solution in chapter 3, namely reconciliation through the grace of repentance, to a foretelling of where all of this is ultimately headed in chapters 4 through 6, which is the execution of his judgment against Judah by way of the Babylonians. And this morning we find him further exposing Judah's habit of presuming upon His grace in chapter 7. We'll divide our text into into three sections. The first, chapter 7 and verses 1 through 15, where we see the Lord threatens expulsion from His house. The Lord threatens expulsion from His house. The second section, chapter 7, verses 16 through 29, where we see the Lord rejects worship at His house. The Lord rejects worship at His house. And then the third, chapter 7 and verse 30 through chapter 8 and verse 3, where we see the Lord foretells destruction in His house. The Lord foretells destruction in His house. So let's start there in that first section, chapter 7, verses 1 through 15, where the Lord threatens expulsion from His house. Look at verses 1 and 2. The text says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. So the Lord once again sends his word to Jeremiah, but again, this time, rather than commanding him to preach it in the land of Judah more generally or in Jerusalem, he's even more specific. The Lord has Jeremiah go up to his house, go up to his temple to stand in its gate and to proclaim his word. For generations. The people of Judah have been going through that gate into the Lord's house, singing His praises, presenting offerings in His name, hearing the priests intercede before God on their behalf and then later pronounce the blessing upon them. For generations, they've heard those priests who don't know God's law speaking lies to them. For generations, they themselves have spoken lies in the Lord's house. And so now he will speak the truth to them through his prophet. And what follows is what has traditionally been called the great temple sermon. Look at verses three through four. The text says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Jeremiah begins by identifying God as the Lord of hosts. Now this, his use of that divine name is significant. To call God the Lord of hosts is to identify him as the one who commands the great angelic army, the heavenly hosts, in defense of his people, Now, the first time that name appears in Holy Scripture is in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 3. When a man named Elkanah goes up to the tabernacle at Shiloh to worship the Lord. Now, interestingly, the Lord refers back to the time when the tabernacle was in Shiloh, viewing it as similar to Jeremiah's time later in verse 12. At that time, the priests who were set apart to serve in the Lord's house were worthless men. You remember Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, were worthless men. They were taking advantage of the people, feeding upon the Lord's sheep like wolves rather than good shepherds. This was, of course, the occasion in which Elkanah's uh, barren wife Hannah, you remember, Uh, took a vow before the Lord in the interest of conceiving a child. And the Lord heard her prayer. She conceived and bore the prophet Samuel. And Samuel served not only as a prophet of the Lord, but as the last judge in the time of the judges. A time in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But it was out of that spiritual decline that the Lord brought about reformation and revival through faithful saints like Hannah, like Samuel, like Jonathan, like David, like Nathan. He purified not only the hearts of His people at that time by and large, but He purified the land by giving them victory over their enemies. And so as Jeremiah uses that divine name, as he invokes the name Lord of Hosts, He recalls a time in which the people had forgotten that the Lord was their protector. And thus they suffered corruption from within and aggression from without. That's the the story. That's what we see. That's the storyline of the time of the judges. And so like Israel at that time, those to whom Jeremiah preaches have forgotten that the Lord of hosts is the God of Israel. And so the Lord appeals to His people's consciences by commanding them to repent in both their thinking and their doing. If they do this, then He will let them continue dwelling in His land, in His city, and in His house with Him. So what we see with the invoking of that divine name, the Lord of hosts, and this reference back to Shiloh that's about to come in the text, is that earlier time, that period of the judges is... Very much like the period that Judah now finds herself in. And how did the Lord bring about reformation, renewal, revival among His people at that time? He did it. He did it through raising up King David. How will He bring about reformation, renewal, revival after this time? After He brings Jerusalem to its end? He will do it when He sends His Son, the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is both David's Son and David's Lord, the true final eschatological Son of David into the world. Apparently, the people of Judah droned on at this time in their worship, saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, by which they meant Because this is the Lord's house, it cannot fall. And so, the Lord exposes that mindless mantra as a lie. And He warns His people against believing it. In other words, He warns them against presuming upon His grace as if it gives them license to pursue their sin. Well, this is a temptation that we all face, isn't it? To presume upon the Lord's grace... As we are faced with temptation, it's very easy to say to ourselves, well, you know, the Lord's going to forgive me anyways. I'll just go ahead with this sin. That's presuming upon God's grace. Now, if you are the Lord's, it's true that He will forgive your sin. But He will forgive your sin after He has taken you through a process of discipline to bring you back to Him through a heart of genuine repentance in which you, you won't presume upon His grace anymore but you will take your sin seriously. This is the spirit of what we call in the theological world antinomianism. Antinomianism. It means against the law. Antinomianism is the belief that obedience to God's moral law has no place in the Christian life. Because we're not under law, but under grace, right? There's a sense in which that's true. We're not under law when it comes to our justification, but we're under grace. But when it comes to our sanctification, yes, we, must, we most certainly are under the law. We ought to be following the law. We ought to be obeying the Lord our God. Belief in antinomianism is tragic. It yields a people who honor God with their lips while their hearts remain far from Him. What does it mean to have a heart for the Lord? What what does God mean when he says that David was a man after his own heart? What does that mean exactly? Does it mean David said to himself, well, God's going to forgive me because he's gracious. It doesn't matter how I live my life. I can just keep sinning and it's okay. No, that's not what it means. It means God's grace had reached David's heart such that David had been transformed and was being transformed, being progressively sanctified, being set free more and more to worship and serve the Lord with sincerity, putting the sin that remained within him to death. God wants his people's hearts. He wants your heart, beloved. Not that he might crush it. Not that he might restrain it but that he might heal it and set it free to truly love both him and neighbor. And of course, that's the essence of obedience to the moral law of God, isn't it? When we say obedience to God's law, what do we mean really? We mean love to God and love to neighbor. The Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit says through Paul in Romans 13 and verse 10, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, it's interesting as an aside here that the Lord points out this kind of mantra that the people would repeat in worship. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's a kind of mindless, you know, uh, droning on Interestingly, I think in many churches where the spirit of antinomianism prevails today, you'll find much of the same kind of mindless droning in the the kind of songs that they sing. There's truly nothing new under the sun. Look at verses 5 through 7. The text says, For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another... If you do not oppress the sojourner the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place and if you do not go after gods to your own other gods to your own harm then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever So for generations the people of Judah have have turned away from the Lord this is not a new thing in the life the corporate life of the people of Judah For generations, they've pursued injustice, being untrustworthy and showing partiality toward one another. They've oppressed the weak, which is another way of saying they've neglected to show them mercy because they've forgotten that they too are ultimately weak apart from God's mercy. They've shed innocent blood, undermining the value of life altogether, which is the basis of all civil justice. They've done all this to their own harm. Harm. And thus we see the way all false religion, all idolatry, is fundamentally self-destructive. It is spiritual suicide. But though all of this is true, yet, and don't miss this, beloved, the Lord in His grace and mercy is holding out the possibility of salvation for His people He is genuinely offering to forgive their sins if they will only repent and trust in Him. If they do this, He says, He will let them continue dwelling in His house, in His city, and in His land. And so having appealed directly to His people's consciences, having called them to repent, in verses 1 through 7, the Lord now adds, Appeals to reason and to history in order to persuade them to repent. He appeals to reason in verses 8 through 11, saying, This, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, We are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. So the Lord condemns his people for trusting in deceptive words, saying, we are delivered while they continue such evil practices. You see how, how backward that is. What is the Lord delivering us from? He's delivering us from sin. He's delivering us. This is the purpose of His deliverance. To speak of the deliverance of the Lord is ultimately about being delivered from sin. So to say we are delivered while you continue under the power of sin is backward. God delivers us from sin that we might be set free to live for Him And so again, we see the spirit of antinomianism in the text before us, beloved. God never saves us from our sin that we might continue in it. He saves us from our sin that we might be set free from it. As the Spirit says in Romans chapter 6 and verses 1 through 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, how can we who have been set free from sin, how can we who were once dominated by our sin, shackled in the chains of sin and God has come by His grace and with His key, He has unlocked the shackles so that we're free to leave and to worship and serve Him. How can we then say, let me go back, put the shackles back on. I'd rather be in the dungeon. In our text, we also see the words that the Lord Jesus quotes when he condemns the temple leaders at the end of his public ministry. We saw that in our first scripture reading this morning from Matthew chapter 21. The same, uh, the same also appears in Mark chapter 11. The Lord asks rhetorically, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? And of course, the implied answer here is Yes. It had become a den of robbers in the eyes of God's people. In other words, the place was supposed to be set apart as a sanctuary. It was supposed to be set apart as a place of safety, a place of refuge. But it had been corrupted and transformed into just the opposite. Could you imagine if you invited your children to your house? Let's assume your children have grown up and they've, they've left home and you invite them all to come to your place at Christmas time that you might love them and bless them and rejoice in their presence and they come not as your children to love you but as thieves to steal from you this is what God's people are doing at this time Derek Kidner comments saying this, the temple could only give sanctuary as a sanctuary. Let man take it over and God will have left it. Beloved, this is one reason we in the Reformed tradition believe the regulative principle of worship is so incredibly important. This is a principle that's stated in Our Westminster Standards, Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 21 on religious worship and the Sabbath day in paragraph 1, summarizes this principle. Essentially what it teaches is that we ought to only do in worship what God has prescribed that we should do in worship when it comes to the elements of worship. God has not given us freedom to just invent our own ways of worship, how we might approach Him in worship but He has taught us how we ought to approach Him in worship. Love, the moment we take upon ourselves the prerogative that God has reserved for Himself, determining how we'll approach Him in worship according to our own desires, is the moment we take over the sanctuary of God and invoke His absence among us. This is why, personally, I am happy that we have those among us who only sing psalms in worship. Now, I believe their belief is wrong, but I would rather that they take the worship of God seriously than to simply capitulate to the views of the, minority, of the majority and thus violate their own consciences. And so I applaud them for the seriousness with which they take the worship of God. And we who take the other view on that issue ought to do so with just as much seriousness and conviction of conscience because God alone has the authority to instruct us in how we ought to worship Him. We dare not claim that authority for ourselves. The Lord continues with an appeal to history in verses 12 through 15, saying, "'Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel.'" And now because you've done all these things declares the Lord and when I spoke to you persistently you did not listen and when I called to you you did not answer therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen all the offspring of Ephraim. So the Lord now points his people back to what He did at Shiloh. Though Shiloh was the first place in the land that the Lord chose, as He says here, to put His name, which is another way of saying it was the first place that He chose that the tabernacle should come to rest and stay there for a period of time. Eventually, He left it behind, and now that city, now Shiloh, sits in ruins after the Assyrian invasion to the north about a hundred years earlier. And so He tells the men of Judah... That he will do to them what he did to the northern kingdom and to Shiloh if they don't repent. He will expel them from his house, from his city, and from his land altogether. And that brings us to the second section, chapter 7, verses 16 through 29, where we see the Lord rejects worship at his house. Look at verses 16 through 20. The text says, As for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry of prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Is it I whom they provoke? Declares the Lord, is it not themselves to their own shame? And therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. And so the Lord now speaks directly to Jeremiah, forbidding him from interceding on behalf of the people to whom he's just preached. And he commands Jeremiah to look upon the great evil. His people are performing before Him. But notice something, beloved. Notice the great evil that the Lord describes. He doesn't describe an occasion that would immediately present itself as evil on the surface. He doesn't describe a thief sneaking around in the dark, or a judge taking a bribe, or a married man going into a prostitute, or a murderer shedding innocent blood. Though we've already seen those things in Jeremiah's prophecy, those things are happening in the land. But instead, the Lord describes what appears to be a rather idyllic domestic scene. Children are gathering firewood. Look how cute. Look how cute. They bring the firewood to Papa, fathers are are kindling fires. Isn't it wonderful? Women are kneading dough. Everything's just right in place. On the surface, things seem quite healthy, but the Lord, remember, looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. He knows what's in the soul. And what's in the hearts of these fathers and mothers? And what are they trying to put in the hearts of their children, what have they likely already put in great measure into the hearts of their children. They're using the good gifts that the Lord has given them like wood, like fire, like grain, like oil, like water, like their fellowship with one another in the bonds of marriage. They're using those good gifts to commit treason against Him. They're using his good gifts to provoke him to anger. But he tells them they're actually provoking themselves. In other words, as they engage in this false worship, worshiping the queen of heaven, whoever that is, they cannot help but become like the things they worship. And before they know it, they're filled with all manner of violence and lust. In this sense, they provoke themselves destroying both themselves and their children to their own shame. And therefore, the Lord's judgment against them is vindicated. Loved in this, we see why it's so important that fathers and mothers train their children up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. The Lord holds us accountable for that work. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. The Lord's judgment against His people is vindicated. And this is why Jeremiah must not intercede for them, for from the least to the greatest. And even in those little moments in which there's something of what appears to be health on the outside in the life of a family, actually deep down what's driving it all is idolatry, you see. And so the time of God's patience has expired. Look at verses 21 through 26 The text says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat the flesh. For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From, that, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I've persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. The Lord now turns once again to address his people at the temple, no longer addressing Jeremiah directly, but the people again. Much like his forbidding Jeremiah from interceding on their behalf, which was an element of temple worship, so he counsels those who bring sacrifices before him, uh, not to bother with offering them up. Rather than wasting them by offering them up in a spirit of hypocrisy, in a spirit of self-righteousness, they may as well save them and use them for food. Like Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, the people of Judah would be better off enjoying their stew rather than pretending to cherish their birthright. After all, the Lord reminds them His requiring burnt offerings and sacrifices from them was never merely about the offerings and sacrifices themselves. It was ultimately about His saving love for them pointing them forward to the coming of the Messiah who would be that final sacrifice for their sins. It was about their heartfelt faith and love toward Him. So apart from such genuine evangelical obedience in the hearts of His people, the offerings and the sacrifices that they present before Him are a stench. In his nostrils, rather than walking in the way that he commanded them, rather than approaching him with, with hearts of genuine repentance, they've hardened their hearts against him, and they've gone their own way. And when he has sent his word to them, as he has done persistently, notice that word, it's not that it's just a one-off. Jeremiah is the, one of the last in a long list of prophets the Lord has sent to his people And yet, they've hardened their hearts when they have heard God's Word. They refuse to listen. And when they've heard the call to repent, they refuse to answer that call. And so their hearts are in even worse condition than their fathers. And it all goes back to their hatred for God and God's Word. Look at verses 27 through 29. The text says, So you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. You shall call them, but they will not answer you. And you shall say to them, This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. Cut off your hair and cast it away. Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. So the Lord... Now turns again to address Jeremiah, to address his prophet directly. He repeats his command from verse 1, namely that Jeremiah must speak all, those, all these words to those who are, who are entering the gate of the temple. But this time he shares a difficult truth. Though Jeremiah will warn them of the judgment to come and though he will call them to repentance, they will not listen to him and they will not answer him. They will not change their ways And truly call out to the Lord with hearts of humility and contrition, but they will remain silent. And so the Lord instructs Jeremiah to appeal to their silence as an image of their condition, commanding him to identify them. In other words, hold up the mirror, show them who they really are, saying, This is the nation. This is the nation that did not obey the voice of the Lord their God and did not accept discipline. Truth has perished. It is cut off from their lips. In this, as I mentioned earlier in our first reading of Holy Scripture, we see a kind of reversal of all that circumcision, the sacrament, the old covenant sacrament of circumcision, signified, beloved. Circumcision was a sign of the cutting away of corruption or falsehood from the person who was circumcised. But in Judah's case, the truth itself has been cut away from them. In other words, though they speak true words about the Lord as they enter into His house to worship Him, because their hearts remain far from Him, the truth just falls from their lips, flop dead onto the ground. It never actually rises up to the Lord. And because the truth has been cut off from their lips... The Lord counsels them to cut off their hair as well. In this, he pictures the great tribulation that is coming through the Babylonian invasion. Because the truth has been cut off from their lips, they themselves will be cut off from the land. And thus we see in this section the way the Lord responds to the corruption of his worship by turning everything on its head rather than receiving Judah's intercessions rather than receiving even Jeremiah's intercession on behalf of the people who are entering the the temple, rather than receiving their offerings and their sacrifices, rather than receiving their praises, he rejects them. Because they offer them in pretense and presumption rather than with sincerity and reverence. And that brings us to the third and final section, chapter 7, verse 30 through chapter 8 and verse 3, where we see the Lord foretells destruction in his house. Let's look at the text again. The text continues, For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no more be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. For they will bury in Topheth, because there is no room elsewhere, and the dead bodies of of this people will be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and none will frighten them away. And I will silence in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall become a waste. At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of, its, of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs. And they shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, and which they have sought and worshipped. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord. So the Lord now finally describes the most heinous sins among His people. They have desecrated His house. They have desecrated the holy ground of His temple with idolatry. They have worshipped false gods in the sight of His house just across the valley. And one element of their false, sacri- or their false worship was child sacrifice. They brought their infant children, sons and daughters, and sacrificed them to a pagan god. Because they've run headlong after death, the Lord says He will give them death. He will pour out upon them the covenant curse through the Babylonians. He describes the execution of His judgment as the destruction of His people. They will be killed in large, such large numbers that their bodies will be left out in the open for the wild beasts to defile. The valley where they committed their abominations will be renamed the Valley of Slaughter. But the Babylonians won't be satisfied until they've done away with Jerusalem's burial grounds altogether. And so they'll defile the graves of the people who died generations earlier, exhuming their bones and laying them out before the heavenly bodies that they used to worship. Isn't that interesting? Their bones get laid out before the sun and the moon and the stars that they used to worship as pagans. But what can the sun, the moon, and the stars do for their bones? Nothing. Nothing but look upon them. That's it. There's only one God who raises the dead, and that's the Lord God Almighty. That day will be so terrible that the people who survive it and are then exiled, God says they would rather be dead. And thus we see, beloved, where all sin leads. Sin is a killer. Sin is a killer. And it always leads to death under the wrath and curse of God, when it's left unchecked by His grace. And so, beloved, in our passage for this morning, we've seen Jeremiah's great temple sermon where the Lord addresses His people through Jeremiah as they they stream into His house, to His temple, in order to worship Him. As we've seen, the way the Lord calls them to repentance, the way He rejects their worship and foretells their destruction is instructive for us in the nature of sin and our great need for His grace. Because they have corrupted the Lord's worship, His sanctuary is actually no longer a sanctuary for them where they might find life and salvation, but has instead become a den of robbers. It has become a place of condemnation and death for them. The incarnate Son, the incarnate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to solve this problem. He came to purify the house of God, to purify the worship of God. And He has become that house. He has become that temple of God for us, and He cleanses all who enter through faith union with Him, absolving them of sin's guilt and their justification by faith alone, and and freeing them from sin's power in their regeneration and sanctification. He calls all who will to come to Him through the grace of repentance that they might enter in and find refuge for their souls. Why are you here today, beloved? Why are you here today? If we were honest with ourselves and we really examined our hearts thoroughly with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure we'd find, at least those of us who have trusted in Christ, those who have been united to Him with a spirit-wrought faith, we would find a kind of mixture, wouldn't we? We'd find sincere intentions, good intentions, but also we'd find a mixture of of sin in there as well. Those good intentions are a miracle of God. That is His supernatural work in the heart. Apart from that work, apart from His grace, we would all be exactly like those that Jeremiah preached to in his day. We would be streaming in just to repeat the words while our hearts remain far from Him. We would be streaming in and thinking, well, I must do this in order to do my part, but I can't wait to be gone so that I can get back to what I really love, you see. And so we find a warning, I think, for our own hearts, a warning for our own souls that we might not presume upon God's grace, but that we might... Examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith and look to Christ by faith. He stands ready to receive all who will come to him in a spirit of true repentance. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for a time to spend in your word. We thank you for this great temple sermon, which you sent through the prophet Jeremiah so long ago. And we give you praise that there is nothing new under the sun, and we see in this text what our own sin would do to us if it were left unchecked by Your grace. And so we give You praise for the grace that You show to sinners like us in the sending of Your Son and Spirit for our salvation. Father, I pray that if there are any here this day who haven't yet received Christ by faith and made profession of their faith, I pray that You would work in their hearts that they might indeed fling themselves upon the mercy of Christ. And trust that He will cleanse them and make them fit to enter your house, to worship and serve you forever. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.